Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me, and uh, we're going to get into the Word of God. Most, many of you will be able to quote the passage that I'm preaching from today. And uh, early on this week, the Lord whispered one sentence into my heart, and uh, I've been fighting and struggling for Him to tell me more all week about it, and finally He did. <laughs> and so I want to I preach to you from Acts chapter 2. I want to start in verse number 37. This is just a little context. This is on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Ghost has fallen upon the New Testament church for the very first time. People in the streets heard them speaking in tongues and they thought they were drunk. Peter stands up to preach with the eleven. And we pick up at the end of his message after he has preached Jesus to this assembled crowd in the streets of Jerusalem. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What do we do with this message about Jesus? What do we do with this witness and this experience of the Holy Ghost? What, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What shall we do? He said, if you'll repent, if you'll be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Listen to Peter's words. He says, for the promise is for you and for your children and all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Someone say, the promise is for me. It's for me. And listen to this. It's the final verse that I will read in our text. He says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Would you say that with me? Save yourselves. Save yourselves. King James says it this way, and this is the way God put it in my heart. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Peter's comments in his last recorded words there strike at a reality that we have to stay aware of. The Bible says that it is appointed once unto man to die. Then cometh the judgment. Eternity stands before every soul that's in this room today one day you will breathe your last breath and you will enter into eternity to one of two destinations you will either spend eternity in the presence of God in heaven or you will spend eternity apart separated from him by your own decisions in hell and so today I want to preach to you from this subject the question that eternity hangs on Every one of us will face an eternity, and there is a question that eternity hangs on. I just wonder if we would just open our hearts to let the Lord speak truth to us today. Heavenly Father, we pray in this room, God, that you would prepare our hearts to receive the truth of your word, God. You know just what we need to hear, and we need to hear it. And I'm convinced today, God, that you came to redeem somebody's life in Jesus' name. We pray, and everybody said, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Listen, nobody knows what the word stubborn means more 
than a parent. Can I get an amen, parents? Children are just built that way. <laughs> Anybody got a stubborn kid? Can I, can I get a little help in the house? I don't think they mean to be that way. That's just the way that they are. Corralling kids, particularly on a Sunday morning, is a special mixture of strategy and art and the pure strength of the human spirit and will <laughs> to get three or four kids to the house of God dressed. Now it's easier when they get a little bit bigger, but if you've got little kids, Angela Leach, God bless your soul. She's got a whole tribe of them. I remember several Sundays as a child when I went to church without shoes on because I couldn't find them <laughs> and mom couldn't find them. And no matter how many times I was told, I didn't put them where they were supposed to go. So when I went to go get them, they weren't where they needed to be. And so I went to Sunday school in socks. I remember walking in with my head down. Oh, you're wearing socks again today. Yep, couldn't find my shoes. My mom was hardcore like that. She said, you can't keep track of your shoes. Well, I'm not going to either. Stubborn kids just won't listen sometimes. Amen? The other day I called my son... Uh, my little one, my four-year-old, five times before he would walk in the room like he's got something more important going on. Stubborn kids, unruly, hard to be led. Uh, uh, young children are not easily guided. You tell them one thing and they do another, amen? You tell them go left and they, they go right. They just do the opposite of what, they, they reach a certain age around probably nine or ten and suddenly they have amassed so much knowledge and experience in life that they no longer need the input or the influence of a parent. They know what they need to do, how they need to do it, and some of them reach it even at the age of four. I, I don't know where I came up with that number. <laughs> Kids, unruly. Anybody ever dealt with an unruly kid? Not ugly, but just hard to be led. Not necessarily rebellious, but just resistant to what they're being told to do but for the rare exception children are by nature unruly they do not quickly gravitate to understanding and obedience they are not easily guided and I've come to tell you today that God's children are no different God told Adam and Eve don't eat that they ate it anyways here we are with a world that's messed up and broken God told Cain, if you would just do well, if you're offering, if you would just do well, you would be accepted. And instead of doing well, he turns around and kills his brother. Kids don't listen. God told Noah's generation, rain is going to come. Get on the boat. And apparently, they didn't want to get on the boat. And so, they didn't get on the boat. And at nearly every turn of the page of Israel's history, they were resisting the will of God. They were running to idolatry. They were, they were uh, abandoning the covenants of God. They were resisting the will and the ways of God. Make no mistake, though, this morning, none of this deterred the love of God. None of this changed how God felt about his kids. None of it removed the love of God. They were uh, unruly. He called them a stiff necked, that just unwilling to be bent generation, rebellious generation. But he still loved them. He still gave his life for them. This did not alter the plan of God, the love of God. 
Sometimes we make the mistake of believing that we can outrun the grace of God. That we can somehow outmaneuver the mercy of God. That we can do enough that is wrong that God will somehow write us off and say, you're out, you're fired, you're done, you're finished. But that, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not who he is. It's not what he does. Sometimes we, we think that we can outmaneuver the mercy of God. That we can sin, somehow sin enough that, that God stops reaching for us. But hear the words of Jesus as he wept over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37. Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often... Would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? But you were not willing. God says, I sent prophets, I sent preachers, I made covenants, I made a way where there didn't seem to be any way. I delivered my people, I I gave them every opportunity to come to me. And he said, even when they killed my prophets, I still would have gathered them together. I still would have loved them. I still would have given them mercy. But they would not. Jesus Speaking to a generation who has rejected prophets, who's killed the messengers of God, who's closed their ears to truth, who has worked against the will and plan of God, who has bucked off divine authority, who is all about self-realization and self-actualization. And to the city that kills the prophets, he doesn't just say there was a moment in time. There was a, a day where I would have gathered you, but he says this. He says, to those who kill my prophets, who silence my truth, how often would I have gathered you together? So many times you don't even know that on the other side of your sin there's a God that's saying come on in come on a little bit closer I still love you I still care about you how often would I have gathered you together you see God's love is not impacted by your resistance God's love is not changed by your sin he loved his people even while they were rejecting him John chapter 1 says that he came unto his own in his own Received him not. He came into his own, his own people, his covenant people, and they did not recognize him and they would not receive him. Instead of the love that he showed and instead of the ministry of setting the captives free that he had done for three and a half years on the earth, they didn't receive him warmly. They resisted him. And ultimately the scripture tells us that they sent him to a cross and they crucified him. And while he's hanging on the cross, this is the same Savior that spoke forgiveness over those who were crucifying him without a cause. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hear me today. They resisted, they rejected, they refused, they placed him on a cross. And none of this impacted how he loved them. None of it changed how he cared for them. I'm confident today that there is nothing that you can do. Somebody hear me really clearly. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. 
There is nothing that you can do that will dissuade this God, this Jesus. I preached about it. I can't get away from this passage in Matthew 19. It tells the story that he's the one that leaves the 99 who are found and chases after the one that is lost. What we would do is we would spend time explaining why the one was mistaken and why they were, why they were rebellious and, and why didn't they just stick with the plan and the process. Not Jesus. Jesus is the shepherd that says, I'll leave the 99 and I'll go search out and find the one that is lost because nothing that that sheep has done has dissuaded the care of the shepherd and I'm here to tell you nothing that you can do can change the love of God in your life but I'm a drug addict that's okay God still loves you but I've been deep in sexual sin that's okay God still loves you but, but I've been an alcoholic and, and you don't know the things that I've done and the things that I've said and how I've resisted God and the mistakes that I've made and the mess that I've made of my family doesn't dissuade the love of God. God still loves you no matter what you've done. Look, I know, I know I'm preaching simple here. But somebody needs to hear and grab a hold of this truth that there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. There is no sin that is too dark that he will not forgive it. There is no best too big, no pit too deep that he cannot pull you out of it. His love is unfailing. His mercy is unending. And his grace never runs out. There is no soul that God does not love. But I would be failing to tell you the truth today if I didn't tell you that hell will be filled with souls that God loves. I wouldn't be doing you any favors today if I left it there and you walked away feeling affirmed that, well, God loves me and it'll all work out. Because the question that eternity hangs on is not, is there a God who loves me? That's not the question. Because his love is unquestionable. He proved God commendeth his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinning, while we're resisting, while we're rejecting, he proved that he loves us. The question of heaven and hell is not, is there a God that loves me? That's already been settled. The issue of eternity is not hinging on whether God loves us. He does. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our eternity is not hanging on whether there is a God who loves us. And listen, eternity is not hanging on whether there is a sufficient Savior or not. John first saw him and they called him the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. Jesus hadn't even gone to the cross yet but John could see in the Spirit what you and I can see in the natural today that this is the Lamb of God. The Bible says that he was without sin 
spot and without blemish. That he lived a sinless, perfect life. He was innocent. He was God, manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, believed on in the world and received up into glory. The question is not, is there a God that loves me? And the question is not, is there a Savior who is sufficient? Our eternity is not hanging on whether there is a sufficient Savior because we have one. And his name is Jesus. The cross is a finished work. Hear me today. I'm going to preach a little theology and then I'm going to get down where you live at the end. But the cross is a finished work. Every time a sinner sins, Jesus doesn't have to be crucified again. Because the cross is a finished work. The ransom for sin was paid on the cross. The the wrath of God was satisfied on the cross because the Bible says that Jesus was our propitiation. All the punishment that we deserve, James tells us the wages of sin is death. All the punishment that we deserve, he took it upon himself. And he took my place on the cross. And he died for my sins. The question is not, is there a sufficient Savior? Because the cross is a finished work. Hebrews 10 tells us that Jesus died once for all. The price has been paid. The ransom has been registered in heaven. And our eternity is not hanging on whether there is a sufficient Savior or not. He's everything that we need and more. And do not make the mistake of thinking that Jesus just coasted along. He suffered temptation at the hands of the tempter. But for you and for me, he denied himself. He suffered temptation in the garden and didn't really want in his flesh to go to the cross. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And hear me today. If you're wondering, is the reason, is eternity hanging on whether or not Jesus is sufficient? No, it's not. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is enough. He's already done the work of salvation for every man. It is available to every man. So the question is not, is there a God that loves me? The question is not, is there a sufficient Savior. Jesus proved His sufficiency when His Spirit returned to His body and He stepped out of the grave. When He overcame death, hell, and the grave, I think that that settles the sufficiency question. Can I get an amen? See, our eternity is not hanging on that. That's not the question because that question has already been answered. And listen, the question is not Is there an available promise? Because in our text, Peter begins to preach on the day of Pentecost. Just uh, just minutes before our text, Peter was both a witness and participant to the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. 120 people were miraculously baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire. And the Bible says they all, somebody say they all, They all received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. 
Somebody hear me today. The question is not, is there an available promise? Because they were confused by what happened. Excuse me, i got to get a drink. Amen. Somebody say a prayer for my voice right now. The question is not, is there an available promise? Because Peter had witnessed it. And the men and women gathered in the streets of Jerusalem. They saw it too. That's why they said, what is happening here? What does this mean? And Peter, standing with the eleven, said, These are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Here's what Peter says. He says, The promise Joel prophesied about 800 years ago is now available. It's now here. It has arrived. It's in this place. And Peter says, the question of your eternity does not hang on whether or not there is an available promise. Because he says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. That the God is pouring out his spirit in the last days. It's not whether there is an available promise. The outpouring flowed out of the building into the streets. The crowd gathered, men out of 16 nations, wondering what does this tongues thing mean? And Peter says, this is the promise of the Father. And Peter preached that the promise was available. He seized the moment and he preached to the growing crowd. And he boldly points out the promise of the Father is being poured out on the people. He preached the promise is for you. It's for your children. It's for all those that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. It's available. Peter preached an available promise. He preached that the same Jesus that they had gossiped about, that they had resisted, that they slandered and crucified, had been raised from the dead and was now pouring out the Spirit in the same streets where they screamed, crucify Him. In Acts 2.32, he said this, This Jesus God raised up and that of that we are all witnesses. And being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter settled the question. Is there an available promise? Yes, there is. Listen, I don't, I don't care who you are or where you're from. You are qualified to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You are qualified. No matter how much you've sinned, God loves you. No matter how far you felt, there's a sufficient Savior. And listen, no matter what you've done, there is an available promise. Peter said, this promise is for you. He preached the promise was available and pointed them to the fact that the same Jesus that they had rejected was now Lord and Savior. Let all the house of Israel know therefore assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. They rejected him. And before their eyes there was miraculous evidence of his promise and of his power. And when Peter said that, they were cut to their heart, the Bible said. And they asked a question. He said, men and brethren, what do we do? How, how do we respond 
to the fact that truth came to our world and we rejected it and put it on a cross. That God sent forth His Son to redeem us and we rejected Him. How do we respond to that? Peter said to them, repent. Here's how you respond to it. Repent. Change your mind and your heart. Repent, every one of you. Repent. Change your heart. Change your ways. Change your direction. You've been resisting God, but now you need to open up to God. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter lays out the threefold plan of salvation. He says, if you've rejected Him, if you've despised Him, and if you want to know Him, here's what you do. is you turn away from your sin. You turn away from the world. You step out of this untoward generation. And you bring God your heart. You repent you get baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins and you shall receive the Holy Ghost for the promises for you and your children and all those that are far off so eternity is not hanging on whether or not there is a God who loves and forgives it is not hanging on whether there is a sufficient Savior and it's not hanging on whether or not there is an available promise. Several hundred received the baptism of the Spirit. 120 it started with, and then hundreds more along with it. That day Peter preached that what we received, you can receive. What we've had, you can have. Listen, I was seven years old, and the preacher preached about receiving the Holy Ghost. And he talked about this Hebrew prayer thing. That if you stick your hands in front of your face, that means you're ready to receive the Holy Ghost. That's what you're telling God. I, I said, okay. <laughs> it's worth a shot. <laughs> I walked to the altar, but my heart was ready. And I started to pray. And at seven years old, I, st- I went from praying and worshiping and repenting to speaking in another tongue and language that God filled me with. Listen, the promise is available. Some, some have come here and you don't know whether that's all real or not. You don't know if that's all right or that seems crazy. That's how it seemed to them in Acts chapter 2. But the promise is available. Listen, there was a guy in our church when, when I pastored in South Texas that, that he was seeking the Holy Ghost. He wanted this promise. He believed that it was for him. And he just struggled. He, he had a whole lot of theology and thinking behind him and he struggled. And, and one night I told him, I said, Look, Mike, if, if you will repent... And you will be baptized in the name of Jesus in obedience and accordance with his word. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's a promise. And Peter said, it's for you. And for months, Mike saw it. We brought in surefire altar workers. My wife's cousin, John Hudson, he could pray through your pet cat. I promise you. You'll have it barking before noon. He, he, he just has a gift for praying with people and helping them to receive the promise of the Holy Ghost. And he came and prayed with Mike and Mike didn't get it. And Mike was worried that the promise might not be available to him. But one night I got a call at 2 a.m. and his wife was on the phone and she was crying and praising God. And she said, you will never believe it. Mike came out of a dream, speaking in tongues, being filled with the Holy Ghost, woke up. 
Listen, whatever God has to do, he can get you the promise. This promise is for you. It's for your children. It's for all those that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. But I'm Baptist. We don't do that. Listen, the Holy Ghost is for Baptists too. But my theology says that that isn't real anymore. Hey, we got a house full of people that want to tell you the promise is still available. It's still available. And it's here in this house today. Promise is not the question. So what does eternity hang on then? If, it, if it's not whether or not God loves me, if it's not whether or not the work of the cross was finished and there is a sufficient Savior, if it's not that the promise is available, what is it? I've done all this preaching about what it's not, but in the last few minutes I want to talk to you about what it is that determines eternity. Peter, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. With many other words, he did exhort and testify, saying to them, Save yourselves. And, and look, you've heard the theology as much as me that you can do nothing to save yourself. Peter begs to differ in the first message on the day of Pentecost of the church. Peter begs to differ. Look, the work of the cross, you can never do that. You're, you're not worthy of enough that's why we have a sufficient savior you can never be holy enough to come to God I get what the theology is saying but some people have wrapped themselves in a theology that withholds them from being saved in this generation because Peter said save yourselves from this untoward generation what Peter was saying is you live in a world that is bent away from God you live in a generation that concocts ideologies and philosophies that will never lead you to a relationship with God Jesus is the only way to do that and so he says if you want to be saved you have to save yourself from this toward generation this unruly always running from God generation Peter says you've got to rescue yourself you've got to deliver yourself you've got to disembrace the stuff that the world is saying the stuff that the world is thinking the lifestyle and philosophies of those that are always running from God. Here's what your eternity hinges on. Is will you respond to what God has already done? Or will you resist? Peter culminates the message with hard hitting words. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. That word untoward is scolios in the Greek. You probably recognize scoliosis, a crooked spine, not going the way it ought to go, not providing the support it needs to support. It means crooked. It means perverse. It means unable to be led, uh, not easily convinced, skeptical, doubtful. And Peter understood the people that he was preaching to were living in an age that had put Jesus on the cross. He, they were living in a religious society of people who went to church all the time but didn't recognize God when he showed up. And they recognized, uh, Peter recognized what their real challenge was is they could be like everybody else. 
and be lost. They can adopt the ideas and the pursuits of the world and be lost. They can resist the will of God and be lost. Or they can save, deliver, rescue themselves from an untoward generation. You see, God has done everything necessary for you to be saved. It's already done. Brother Toby, please come and just softly play. It's already done. The work of the cross, Jesus said it is finished. The promise has come on the day of Pentecost. Everything is in place for you to meet eternity ready to meet your maker. Everything that you couldn't do, he's already done. He's already done. So the question today is not will God. The question today is will you? Because I told you in the beginning of this message, God loves you. Some of you will listen to my voice today. You'll walk out and you'll never give him another thought. He still loves you. He still calls to you. That okay, if we preach about eternity in 2020, here's the question, church member, is can you save yourself from this untoward generation? God has done everything necessary, but your eternity hangs on whether or not you will choose to incline your heart towards heaven. Peter was preaching that a necessary step to making your calling and election sure is the decision to break ranks with an unbelieving, God-resisting, truth-hating world around you. That was a generation that produced religion that held people out of heaven rather than brought them into it. Man-made rules couldn't discern the voice of God. It was a generation that was moving in the wrong direction. An untoward generation. I submit to you that's where we live today. Because this world will fill your heart and your head with ideas and pursuits that will only cause you to be carried away. And what Peter was saying that day with not just one sentence, but Peter spent the rest of his time after he preached Acts 2.30, spent the rest of his time dealing with this issue, is can you save yourself from an untoward generation? Can you divorce yourself from doubt in order to be saved? Can you choose to put God above your own desires and your own thoughts? Listen, we've got, we've got a generation that is changing definitions all the time. The Bible says that in the last days they will call good evil and evil good. And if you haven't noticed, Christianity has become public enemy number one. Why? Because there is a world and a system that is set up to lead you away and not be easily guided to truth. Peter was preaching that in order to be saved, a person must break ranks with the world's resistance to God's truth. We live in a proposed truth society. Truth doesn't matter. Just the pieces and parts of it that I can harvest to leverage my political persuasion or my theological belief. Truth doesn't matter to the media doesn't matter to social media 
truth doesn't matter to a lot of people anymore. But Peter said, if you want to be saved, it has to matter. It has to matter. Romans 1 was not that the problem was not that they did not know God. The problem was that they did know God and they still did not acknowledge Him as God. Listen, people will not go to hell because of what they do know. Because when the gospel will be preached in every land, then He'll come. People will not go to hell because they did not know. People will go to hell having known. Romans 1 said they knew God. That they saw that He was God. They saw that there was a God. And they did not acknowledge Him as God. But rather they worshipped the creature more than the Creator. And they exalted their own desires. And they had idolatrous lifestyles. And they got so far away from God that He turned them over to themselves. And as a result, truth fell in the streets. Sexual identity and gender and all of that changed. That's Romans 1. You would think it's talking about today, but it's Romans 1. In Roman society, they were living in an untoward generation. And Peter says, if you want to be saved, you got to save yourself. Somebody say, save yourself from this untoward generation. You see, in closing, I want to tell you this. That the beliefs and the systems of this world are set up by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4 tells, Paul says, We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this age has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God should shine unto them. Listen, he's saying that there's a world that's meant to hide God's presence from the people who God loves. And so you've got to save yourself from this untoward generation. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood I'm not preaching about people. But listen, there are spirits behind ideas. There are spirits behind beliefs. And there is a spiritual realm that is at war for the souls of humanity. And Peter is saying you've got to pick a side. You cannot stay in the world, live like the world, think like the world, act like the world, and receive the salvation that God has for you. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Because hell has organized an entire culture around a single purpose. And that is to create conditions in which men and women will be resistant to the truth of God. And if we're not careful, hear me today, this is a different message. But if we're not careful, the world will shape what lies within us. Peter understood the lay of the land. What question does eternity hang on? It's not what will God do because it's already settled. But your eternity in the close of this service hangs on whether you will fall into the trap of marching in step with a world that is moving away from God that thinks in terms of secular humanism or whether or not you will receive
believe the truth of God and whether or not your heart will be open to a Savior who laid his life on the line for you. People, uh, Peter understood the reason that people will spend eternity in hell will not be because God doesn't love them. It will be because there was, it will not be because there wasn't a sufficient Savior or an available promise. It will be because some people allowed their hearts and minds to be shaped by a generation that always resisted God, that was not easily guided, that became unreachable and spiritually unavailable. And with many words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Your eternity does not hang on what God will do. Ladies and gentlemen, it hangs on what you will do. In Acts chapter 2, their hearts had been pricked. Stand with me as I come to a close. And they said, men and brethren, what, what shall we do? For perhaps the first time they recognized. They recognized that they had rejected God's love and His overtures towards them. And they, they were pricked in their heart when they heard. They said, what do I do about this? How, how do I handle this? Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter wasn't alluding to ritual, but a deeply personal moment of repentance before God where someone would say, God, please forgive me for my sins and deliver me from myself. He pointed them to baptism. Baptism is a type of Noah in the ark. When he went into the ark, the door closed behind him and he was dead to the world that then lie behind him. Peter said, repent and bury that old life. Bury it in the waters of baptism. And he said, you shall receive the promise of the Holy Ghost. That promise is available to you today. And God will give it to you if you ask. And so today as I close, it just doesn't depend on God. God has done everything that you need Him to do. Revelations says it this way. Jesus standing at the door of a lukewarm church is knocking and He said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if any man will open, I will come into him. There are no qualifications on who's behind the door. Lukewarm, backslidden, far from God, disappointed, dejected. Life and questions have caused you to stop pursuing relationship with God. But God says, I am knocking at the door. And all you've got to do is decide whether or not you want to open it. Now here's, here's how I want to close today. I'm going to open these altars. We're not going to lay hands on each other, but if you feel the need to come and stand in a time of repentance, I want to open these altars where you can stand, try to social distance. But as an act of faith, I don't care if you've been in church 35 years or if you've, you've been here 35 minutes, if you just slipped in, 
if you want to make your eternity sure, I want you to step to this altar and just pray a prayer of repentance. Please come. Would our church members and leaders, would you just step out, just space out, whether it's in the aisle or wherever, but just, I want us, I want us to spread out and make a moment where we say, you know what, God, I don't want my heart and my life to be shaped by this world that is always running from you. But God, I open up my heart to you today, God. I open up the door to my heart to you today, God. Yes, I messed up, but Lord, your love remains. Yes, there's a Savior that suffered and died for me. Yes, I believe it, God, and so I give my heart and my life today. When our singers come and sing, I want to lead us in a prayer of repentance right now. Heavenly Father, God, your word is truth and it is life. And Lord, we can't change hearts if we don't challenge mindsets. And God, I pray that somebody would begin to consider eternity today, God. That somebody would be considering eternity, God. The question that our eternity hangs on is, will I respond when God speaks? Will I open up my heart? Will I open up the door and let Him do what only He can do? Listen, some of you are break broken right now. Some of you, you don't have a lot of faith. But the good news is, Scripture says you don't need a lot. All you got to do is just give Him what you have. Just resist the world and what will people think and, and what will people say. And just say, you know what, God, I'm putting everything. I'm stepping out of this generation that runs from you. And God, I'm going to be the one that seeks after you. Right now, Heavenly Father. We pray you would come into this room.